Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this episode of the Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Etienne Garbugli. Based in Rome, Etienne works at the intersection of technology, product design, and marketing. He's a three-time startup founder, a five-time entrepreneur, and a recognized user experience research expert. You can follow him follow him on Twitter at egarbugli and check out his website at etiennegarbugli.com. Etienne is the author of a number of popular books, including the main book we're going to be talking about today, Lean B2B, Build Products Businesses Want, Second Edition. And this recently mm-hmm. published translation, Lean B2B, Créer les produits que les entreprises veulent. In the book, Etienne provides startup founders, entrepreneurs, and product teams with a playbook for building, validating, and selling business-to-business products in a world where products get hired and fired faster than ever before. In this interview, we're going to talk about his background and career, professional interests, his books, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his experience as an author. So thank you very much, Etienne, for being on the Lean Pub Front Matter podcast. Thanks for having me. I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and how you found yourself interested in um, inventing things and technology. Uh, so I was born uh, close to Montreal in Canada, the other side of the country from you. Uh, and uh, basically, if we're looking specifically at inventing things and all this thing, that's been there since I was maybe four year, or years old. It was the building things with Legos or whatever it was and kind of started with that. I think that's to some extent that probably led me into uh, the creative fields and more entrepreneurship. Uh, kind of brought me to study communications where it was a lot of different projects, different exploration across different media, different types of uh, technologies. And then from there, I had, uh, I had a career working for larger corporations as well, working for uh, eventually more startups, then starting out my own company, which was kind of the, the launch pad for starting a first startup uh, around 2007, 2008. Uh, which was uh, specifically uh, geared towards uh, solving some of my own problems. Uh, that's I've got a question, I've got a sort of specific question about the timing of that launching of your own business. Um, yes. Uh, that I, I just learned, I didn't know it was in 2007, 2008. And that is something that you actually mentioned in the, in the introduction to your book. But um, before we do that, um, I, I, when I was preparing for this interview, I listened to a couple of interviews you'd done on on, on YouTube, and you talk about, um, I think your first experience with with a computer, or you had early access to the internet because your dad worked for a company that <laughs> anyone anyone in Quebec will be familiar with called Bell. Yes. Um, yes. Uh, and so, what was that like? What did 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 you have actually like truly like kind of before all your friends and stuff like that? Uh, yeah, very much so. So my dad was in charge of uh, technology purchases at uh, Bell. Uh, so at some point, someone at school had mentioned like, oh, that thing, the internet. And I was like, the internet? What is that? And then it turns out that we actually had it at home already. So I just asked my dad like, oh, can, can I actually play with it? And then you get the first experience where you're like loading a page really slowly. It's uh, It's been that progressive discovery, but also like just that kind of I guess that that wildness of the initial internet where you could just basically discover so many things, the excitement that kind of came with that. Like last month I was reading the um uh, I was reading the book on on Doom, uh, which is a great book. Like it's a little bit older, but like this kind of reminded me that old period of the nineties where it was kind of like everything was kind of happening as new things as well, like just the the discovery of distribution platforms, the internet and all that stuff. It just got me back to this amazing feeling of like discovering the internet and kind of kind of feeling like okay like everything's possible which was just amazing and um speaking of things being a little bit wild um uh i did my undergrad years in a very boring place called saskatoon saskatchewan but you were in a really much cooler place called montreal quebec um uh and uh, you went to concordia i believe 
I went to Concordia, uh, studied uh, communication studies. And I just have, just to give so, a little bit of color to your background, it's just sort of really interesting. There are actually yeah, lots of, there are yeah, lots of universities in Montreal, um, uh, and yes, lots of lots yes. of young people kind of in those years. What what was it? What was undergrad life like uh, as a student in Montreal? Uh, it was a little bit of a scattered program, so it was interesting uh, in terms of just being able to explore different things. So I got into like robotics. I got uh, electroacoustic music. We talked a little bit about microphones before. I studied sound. My my initial goal back then was to go and uh, record, like do music for films, more or less. But that's kind of the path that I was on. I also like exploring other fields as well. So like, kind of that broad sense of like creativity, which was uh, which was uh, a really good awakening in terms of just discovering like, okay, so yeah, you can you can actually create anything you want. You can kind of do this, and it's kind of led to some of the. Uh, I guess the the drives to create new things or create uh, create products or create things like that. I think there's like a, a continuity some somewhere in there. Definitely, yeah. Um, uh, I think you mentioned one of the one of those um, uh, interviews I I just talked about, sort of watching that. Like it might not be apparent to others, but to you, there's this continuity in in what you've done throughout throughout your yeah. life of uh, yeah. uh make, making things and inventing things and things like that, even though it might be in different spheres. Um, and, and so what was your, what were your, were your first jobs in Quebec? Uh, you mean as a teenager or as a, after, after you graduated? Oh, so yeah. So I was, um, I ended up working for a French company that was doing, we were, uh, we were put, uh, sending music and, uh, background images on cell phones. So that was back when it was like, what, like the technology, uh, so that's quite interesting. It's my first experience of working for, I, I, I believe, a startup back then, and all that e-commerce process, like just the way you would actually monetize the the business like that. So it was a very high-paced company, which was interesting, but also like a lot of freedom. Uh, and I still very much uh, enjoyed the, the, these times where you kind of like that small team working together on these things. And uh, yeah, it's been a, an amazing first start of career. It kind of brought me to, uh, I guess, the path where I was on. Yeah, and you and so you eventually um, uh, founded your first your own first startup. You said in two thousand and seven, two thousand and eight, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about about that experience. What was the name of it? What was it? What was it devoted to doing? Yeah, so, so I, I was working. Uh, I started doing some consulting after working for larger companies, and I was working for an agency in Montreal uh, called Sidley. Uh, they're actually pretty big in more of the branding space and everything. And we were doing all these web projects and had some challenges in terms of like QA and, and just getting feedback and syncing everybody on projects. So we started working. So it was uh, uh, basically uh, creating a layer on top of the web. So kind of creating something that kind of sits on the browser and allows people to add notes on the internet. So be able to share notes on any page anywhere on the internet. Uh, so that was an interesting experience. So there's, there was a first startup without necessarily knowing how to necessarily take a technology product from start to the end, also get it funded and all that, that stuff. Yeah, was also very fun back then. There's so many mistakes that probably informed a lot of things that I did afterwards. Yeah, and can you maybe maybe give us an example of one or two of those uh, mistakes? Uh, I'd say like the, the biggest thing is basically we... We kind of ran ran out of money or ran out of momentum. We we wasted way too much uh, time just defining the thing before starting to get feedback. We eventually did a beta. We were able to get the interest of a bunch of different companies, but we were lacking some of the functionalities to actually wrap it together and kind of be able to sell it properly. 
And then uh, also just the team structure. I was working with an agency as the partner in in the business. So they had different interests. Uh, so it was kind of creating a little bit of a weird tension where the money in the business could also be attributed to different things, other, other ventures for them or other projects for them. It was kind of creating some clash. I think the uh, the the setup that we were in was, was kind of like a, a bit limiting our ability to actually succeed with the business. But there was a lot of interesting things in terms of just the learning process and the self-discovery or self-confidence uh, building. I just as a person, just kind of realizing, okay, like this is a completely new experience, but this is actually uh, giving me X, Y, Z. I think I've grown significantly in that experience and kind of led me to starting up again. Yeah, there's there's um tons of interesting things we could talk about there. Um, uh, it's one of the um, one of the things the distinctions we should actually probably make uh, before we go any further is between business to consumer or B two C and business to business products or B two B, which is of course what your book is about. Um, but for people who aren't familiar with the terminology, I guess if you could maybe because I think most most people are familiar with when they think about a startup, a web startup or something like that, or a tech startup, they're yeah. thinking about business to consumer, yeah. business to business. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit, but just at a high level, like what the differences are between those two types of companies. I'd say that's a good, that's a very good setup uh, for, for this, because that's kind of the reality that, that, uh, that the universe, the startup universe was like back then a little bit where um, I think the setup or the way pe people perceive startups were very was was very much tied to uh, consumers product, so like mobile apps that target consumers because there's a, way more consumers on the market, and oftentimes business products or business technology was um, associated with this idea of like the the old software or the old enterprise solutions. These products that were very uh, very stiff or very very old school a little bit. So a lot of the entrepreneurs were kind of going after more consumer opportunities in part because they wanted to solve their own needs maybe, or because they were also interested in things that they knew or that be basically the investors were also driving that uh, messaging because back then it was, uh, the, there was, there were more uh, bigger successes in B2C specifically with consumer software like Facebook, for example, and all these products that were kind of coming up and were just basically raising the bar and raising the the ambitions of every entrepreneur looking at the the space. Yeah, it's uh it's a super fascinating distinction. I mean, you know, when you uh when you go in business to customer you know, it's like, you know, you've set up a platform and you sort of make it interest an interesting place to go and hopefully it becomes popular and takes off. So, you know, Facebook, yeah. WhatsApp, uh, Google, for example, things like that, although Google's a little bit different. But um, yeah. uh, when I think about, I've done a little bit of, of sort of B2B in my own life um, and uh, particularly yeah. a, an attempt at enterprise sales for, for a client and stuff like that. And like, the story I like to tell when when I'm trying to explain it to people who've never never heard of it before, you you mentioned something about sort of older technologies being entrenched in businesses and stuff. And there's there's a there's a just sort of famous story in sort of American business life where uh, when the first sort of VCR was invented. And for those who don't know what that means, um, in, the, <laughs> in the in the olden days, um, people used to only be able to play video with uh, physical tapes, basically. Um, and when the, this machine was first shown to a bunch of Disney executives. Um, there was like a, there would have been a television probably on a stand wheeled into a room uh, with this VCR and on the on the stand as well. Someone would have put a tape into it and pressed play and probably played a Disney movie or something like that. And the executives kind of looked at each other and looked around and said, "You mean anybody can just walk in the room and watch it without paying?" 
And I just love telling that story because if you want to know, like selling into a business can be like, you know, yeah. you can be like, oh, I invented this amazing thing. Anybody can, you can sell these tapes to everybody in the world and they can watch your movies whenever they want. And they're like, that completely destroys our business model in every way we think yeah. about everything. Um, and it was yeah. only, you know, basically 50 years later that Disney finally got into streaming. Uh, so I was just on that note, uh, there's, there's all kinds of interesting things when you're selling into a business like, um, one thing you talk about, uh, I, I'm, I'm sort of jumping ahead here a bit, a bit, but I don't want to go into the specific terminology that you talk about in your book, like change agent and stuff like that. But when you were doing your first startup, trying to sell a B2B product, what did you do? Yes. Did you did you identify, did you have like an Excel spreadsheet with a bunch of different businesses you wanted to contact and then cold call or cold email people? How did you try to get in? I actually would say it was uh, much worse than that because... <laughs> Also, so if, if we're talking about books, basically, like one of the things that led to my my second startup was was basically uh, uh, the the amount of, of uh, inspiration or excitement that came after the the the, the launch of the, the Lean startup, which I assume Lean Pub is somewhat tied to in terms of the the, the at least the mindset there. Uh, so at that point, the idea was basically to apply the Lean startup to a B two B concept and 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 try to build a business. So we actually did like way worse than that. Like we started, uh, we did landing pages trying to get people at like large, like twenty five thousand employee companies, uh, people companies trying to get them to click on landing pages, or trying to get them like call cold call companies trying to get um, uh, kind of pre sale products that are directly. We're trying all sorts of different things, trying to apply the techniques or at least adapt them a little bit. To the, the in in the lead startup and adapt them to to the reality of B two B, and that was quite difficult because it felt like there is a there is a little bit of a, a let's say like a, a level of information that was kind of lacking, where we were kind of having these these very uh, consumer centric uh, consumer centric techniques that we're trying to apply to large organizations. But when you're dealing with a large organization, there's way more people in the organization, way more uh, influences, way more voices at the table. So when you're selecting, uh, for example, that that uh, that TV that you're mentioning, or uh, or see so you're selling something else, there's more people that get involved in the purchase. So it was just uh, way easier to kind of get false positives or go in the wrong direction. So it's very difficult to to kind of feel like we're making the right progress or or, or know how to make. Progress. So we're trying to to um, to kind of sell to specific audience uh, based on what we thought was the value proposition for a solution. But it was, it was very difficult to kind of get uh, a sense of progress or sense of having reliable information that we could actually build on to be able to get clarity on exactly what uh, we should be building or what we should be putting together in terms of the value proposition that we're putting together. So there was a lot of like just going in circle a little bit where we built a bunch of different products. We felt like we we're kind of going in circle a lot. Uh, it eventually got clear as we learned about the process, learned more about B2B and the specific aspects of B2B. But that was uh, a little bit like walking in the, in the wild and kind of trying to find your way without necessarily having the uh, the right vision of exactly where you're trying to get to. And um, that you you were just talking about your second startup, but the first one was 2007 yeah. and 2008 yes. as well, which is super instructive, right? Because about, yeah. I would imagine about B2B sales, because for example, you could get that meeting with the big company and you show up, you know, and you sort of, you know, go to the top floor or whatever floor you get to. Yeah. Um, and uh, and then everything can be going well. And then there can be just some catastrophic economic 
collapse and then everything can just blow up. Yeah. Yeah. Or basically you don't necessarily know how to move the relationship forward. Like we were lucky enough to get good meetings with large organizations, but then if you're not, you're, you're not sure exactly how to, like you're trying to follow a, let's say a lean approach or something like that, or you're not exactly sure how to best uh, get clarity on how to sell to the organization without having to uh, overcommit or, or, or have to build something upfront as a solution, it, it gets very, very muddy in terms of uh, pushing things forward or, or making progress. I can imagine one of the, um, there's just so many challenges with that, but uh, one of them would be, you know, if you've got a sort of big, big whale that you're trying to land, um, and then one person in the meeting is like, oh, we'd love to have this feature, and someone else says, we'd love to have that feature, and we'd love to have yes. this one. Yes. And you can yes. be like, ah, you know, what? how do we, but then you've got another another sort of potential client who's just, you know, not interested in any of those things, but you've got limited yes. developer and design time, and you've got to find a way to sort of make design decisions in those contexts. Absolutely, but it's very tricky because you don't want to build anything uh, based on just the voice of one customer. So you're trying to whatever you define as uh, as a, the right path or the right solution. You kind of want to make sure that there's other potential customers buying this. Like we had this situation at that point where we were engaging with uh, someone very senior at a large gaming company in Montreal, and that person had like it's very rare. We were in HR, very rare that the HR people will be actuaries so very much like math driven like very very much like calculating everything in terms of numbers roi all these things it just gives you completely different perspective than what you might expect from uh, other organizations even the same sector if you spoke to other uh vps of hr at other organizations in h in in gaming for example you would probably not get the same perspective there's very there's a lot of these little um uh, challenges that you need to navigate in terms to of and uh, your attempt to get the right information and get gain, gain some validated learning that you can actually build on uh, to build the right product for the right audience. Yeah, it sounds like you're uh, definitely battle hardened um, uh, going into sort of, you know everything into going into gaming companies in particular, I imagine. But uh, before we go on to talk about your book um, and and the first edition and how that came about, and then the second edition, uh, I just wanted to get to know you a little bit more. So we sort of started with you in Montreal, uh, you know, starting these startups and things like that. But I know that you also um, ended up working for ThoughtWorks, ThoughtWorks for a while, and you, you've traveled yes. a lot and you spent some time in China and things like that. So if maybe yes. you could build up a little bit more of your story there. Uh, yeah. So around that time, so between the first and the second startup, uh, I had the idea, I've always had the, the desire, the drive to, to go live abroad. And I was, I was, um, uh, fascinated by going to the places where I guess the innovation, maybe finding a little bit what we mentioned before about like the nineties, that feeling of, of things being like super, uh, super active and things are, are being evolving really quickly. And at that point, uh, and even today, like in, in Asia, like the old mobile space was, was blowing up. So my, my idea was to move to Hong Kong, join, uh, either a game studio, join a company that was, um, working in, the internet space in China and kind of see what was that, what was happening over there and see how I could actually level up my skills and grow, learn new things, kind of rediscover that, 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 that uh, fresh growth a little bit. Um, so I ended up going to Hong Kong and then the market in Hong Kong was a little bit, uh, uh, I guess deflated a little bit. This, so maybe not the best time to go find a job there. 
I ended up uh, meeting someone who connected me with someone from Beijing. I I ended up doing three interviews, got hired in Beijing, and ended up working in China for a little while, uh, which was a very very interesting uh, experience. Probably more on the well, probably equally on the business or the the learning side as it, as from the the human side, just the personal growth uh, aspects, and that kind of set me up to kind of decide that I was not necessarily going to stay and live in, in Canada long term and kind of made me want to explore more parts of the world and, and kind of keep uh, keep traveling. And did you have to get a uh, special visa to live and work in China? Yes, yes. So uh, there's a bunch of different tests that you need to pass. Oh. Well, at least at that time that you needed to ta- pass like L test, you had uh, uh, different background check as well. You had to send your uh, your cool grades, you had to prove that you were actually uh, very good in your field, all these different things on top of the test that ThoughtWorks is notorious for like, the amount of tests that they uh, they make their employees or people that apply for the company uh, go through. So there are like psychological testing, all these different things. So it was a, a very interesting process. And uh, yeah, so this has been <laughs> an interesting growth experience. That's uh, interesting, actually. That's a bit of a digression, but I didn't know that ThoughtWorks had a kind of robust kind of testing uh process for employees but we i've had a number of uh former thoughtworks people on the podcast and a lot of quite a few really? GitHub okay. authors are thoughtworks people oh yeah 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 okay, that's um, very interesting yeah i know and they're all they all they all have a sort of like I've, I've never really narrowed it down but there's a certain they're all different from each other in all kinds of ways but there's a sort of consistent yeah. flavor to a kind of um competence and kind of quickness i suppose uh that they must select for yeah, so ThoughtWorks is a company that really built a lot of it, its own IP, its own like uh, mindsets, and a lot of these things are actually pre, like they they were actually uh, early adopters of many things, including including continuous delivery, um, uh, or a lot of the ideas of uh, Mark Martin uh, Martin laughing. Fowler. Yeah, Martin Fowler, like who was actually working in the company still back then, mm-hmm. like all these these things. So they have a lot of these mindsets. And it's been interesting because they do feel a little bit of, um, at least the people that I've met, they do feel a little bit of frustration that a lot of ex-thought workers just kind of go out of the company and kind of write a book about the processes that they have or the ideas that they're actually, that are kind of commonplace in the company. And there's a few of these. I think Jeff Patton is is an ex-thought worker. I I might be wrong, uh, but around like uh, user mapping or something like that. but like, yeah, I remember having a, a discussion about that specifically, and there were a bunch of different app approaches as well uh, that probably could have been turned into books uh, back then, but maybe now or, or have evolved quite a bit if you were still working at uh, ThoughtWorks. And what was life, just just very briefly, what was life life as a life like as an expat in uh, in Beijing? Uh, it's a very interesting experience, um, especially back then, like where the uh, the the uh, the rates between the uh, let's say the USD and the um, uh, the yuan were very different, so it was very much like uh, a feeling of, of everything is possible. Like they cracked down a little more on like the 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 uh, on the foreigners that were living the the foreign experts, but back when I was there, it's still very much a thing. So you had a, a category of experts that were working for organizations, were paid quite well, had really good positions in these organizations. And it was an interesting uh, community, and you could sense that it was starting to really bubble up uh, in in Beijing, for example, also in the south of China. So you could sense, like I met 
a lot of different uh, innovators, different people in different types of company when I was in Beijing. It was very, very interesting. You could you could sense that like things were going to pick up. Uh, there were more and more uh, local firms that were starting to innovate globally, more things that were coming out of China. And in the last uh, 10, 15 years, like you've really seen it actually start being uh, uh, a much more common occurrence. Um, and and eventually you just became a kind of world traveler and now you're now you're in Italy. Yeah, yeah. I, well, it's actually a little more complex than that. But like, yeah, I've kind of made the decision that I was not going to live in Canada long term. So I used the the lean methodology to kind of find where I was going to live. And this has taken me uh, through years uh, all the way to here where I was lucky enough to get the uh, uh, the citizenship in Italy. Oh, oh, you got citizenship. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, during the pandemic, uh, that was a, a side project during the pandemic. Yeah, it's interesting. You um, you mentioned uh, you a couple of times. You know, you don't just apply uh, you know sort of lean methodology to sort of B two B or startups or something like that, but it sort of can be can be applied uh, more widely yeah. to to all kinds of different things, um, including books. Um, so just b- before we segue into the next uh, next part of yeah. the uh, podcast, where we talk about the origin story of your the first edition of your book, I do have to mention that the very first lean pub book was Startup Lessons Learned, which was Eric Reese's first book, which was based on his okay. blog. So Lean Pub started out as a blog to book kind of thing. And our first one was was Eric Reese's blog, um, which he it's funny, like I said, another thing you could apply lean methodology to is your blog. And so I think I think he, he was the per- person whose first post was like low my five subscribers or something like that. Right. But like you've got to start for every process in life. You start. Yeah. Somewhere. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you yeah. Pay, pay attention to what you're doing. And if, if anyone's curious, like get the lean startup. It's a really great book. It transformed a lot of things. Yeah. Um, but you know, the sort of core of it is remember that you always got to, you've always got to start somewhere with everything um, and just pay attention to what's going on. Be open-minded, be willing to change, but but really pay attention to the signals that you're getting uh, from the people that you talk to. Yeah. 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 And it's, it's a little bit like sometimes you don't realize that there are signals and you just get it in hindsight. I think that's probably uh, the beauty of, uh, I guess, trying to evaluate your experience and kind of seeing the patterns that kind of came out of it. Yeah, and and exactly, exactly. And another thing you can apply it to is is uh, is publishing books. Um, so uh, yes. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um what the origin story was of your. I mean, what I'm actually I'm, I'm I would imagine Lean B two B may not have been your very first book, but how did you get into writing uh, and publishing books? Uh, actually, Lean B two B was was my very first book. Oh, um, okay. Yes, yes. So in uh. uh I think I think I think I probably always a little bit uh, had that in the back of my mind that I wanted someday to be an author. I had no real plans, like fixed plans of when I was going to do this. Uh, so when I ended up um, uh, closing up closing up my second startup, uh, Iron Voice was the name. I ended up writing a postmortem on my blog just like one night. I was it was four in the morning. I was just typing things on my computer. And then I just shared it. And the next day, I had a bunch of different people that, that had seen it, that had been shared on Twitter, and actually got invited uh, to um, uh, to give a few talks, but also to, uh, it got featured, I think, in the Toronto Star, I like to think, one of the, the newspapers in, in Toronto, uh, the largest city in Canada. Uh, and, and that kind of, I got some feedback from the actual, uh, the, the journalist was kind of telling me like, he was like, this is really interesting. You should kind of think about writing about, uh, about this or writing in general. Um, this kind of got the process going, especially I was still kind of trying to figure out where we had gone wrong throughout the process. Like I, I, there was the, there were the obvious mistakes that we made, 
but you're also like overall like like how could I actually have uh, done this differently uh, to get a better outcome out of the startup. So I kind of got a little bit obsessed. And sometimes I do that. Like I got a little bit obsessed about figuring it out. Uh, so I spent uh, the next three months interviewing B2B founders, uh, trying to get um, their experience, trying to capture a little bit their process. How they think about uh, getting product market fit or building a startup, picking ideas uh, and kind of getting customers, getting 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 users. Uh, I did this for a while, did a lot of research. And the more I kept going, the more I started building out some some sort of methodology that uh, I wasn't really thinking so much about. Uh, I was just putting together a book. I was trying to make it make sense. And then um, maybe a year and a half after that, I ended up publishing the book after a few series of testing. So I, I did uh, the testing with several readers uh, for the first book as well. Uh, and I launched a book, sold the first copy in the first hour, and then uh, it's been a gradual, uh, a gradual uh, uh, increase in sales over time. Actually, I just basically wanted to do this as an experiment back then, but it did end up that I would get feedback, get invited to different places. I think we froze. Yeah, yeah, that's okay. But you're talking about yeah. the, the benefits. So yeah, there were a lot of benefits, but not necessarily. Uh, just the sales, but ended up I my when I uh, applied for a company when I ended up uh, being interviewed with uh, the company I work at afterward the start startup, the CEO had actually read the first uh, ninety pages before an interview, so I kind of got hired because of the book to some extent. Uh, I got invited to a bunch of different things that I probably would not have had, and over time it just kept building, and uh, I kept realizing that the, the the market or the world, the startup world, was shifting more and more towards B2B. So whereas it did the start, there were very few B2B startups. Uh, if you spoke to investors, they would kind of try to find the B2C angle, the consumer angle in your 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 company. And the more it went, the more it became uh, B2B, B2B uh, centric, more and more companies targeting different segments and companies. And it kind of validated some of the things that I had taught initially when I was considering uh, spending a thousand hours working on the book. Uh, on this 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 case is sometimes I, I am right. <laughs> yeah, no, it's that no, that's very interesting. There's a lot to talk about there, but um, and including um, uh, we had Dave Farley on the podcast not too long ago, who wrote the continuous delivery book, and he talked about how he yeah. and his co-author would they spent the like about that amount of time at least <laughs> on their book as well. And while they're in the middle of it, they're like, "Is anyone ever going to read this?" Um, uh, you know, there's a lot of questions that you ask yourself and we can talk a little bit about the process afterwards, but I know, yes. but, but, but the book was sort of great, very well targeted, obviously, um, you know, everyone knew about lean, um, and stuff like that. And then there was lean startup, but again, you, what you sort of noticed was it says lean startup and that's generic, but it was mostly business yeah. to customer. So you were B2B, yeah. which, and again, and it's interesting, you write about how that one of the reasons that shift towards sort of B2B company creation and success happened was because people realized businesses have a lot of money to invest in products. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's been interesting as well, because uh, when I look at the, so I do, I, I pretty much do continu continuously, I try to categorize the buyers that I find of the book, mm -hmm. kind of look at their, 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 uh, their backgrounds, I kind of try to speculate on the reasons why they're buying the book and what their interest is. Whenever I get information, I try to improve the the understanding. So looking at the personas that came out of that, 
And it's been way more than than just B2B founders. I, I think that's probably 50% of the buyers. But then it goes into other segments like researchers in school, or like uh, innovators, innovation consultants who have uh, who really help like promote the book and push it in a bunch of different businesses. So it's been really interesting uh, just seeing that play out. And it kind of helped inform the other books that I did where I was like, okay, like even if I do, a, I'm trying to do a book on specifically like, uh kite surfing in the bahamas like there's still going to be people that are going to be picking up that book to learn how to do to to uh to do to do skateboarding like it, it, it like that might be an extreme example but like there's always like unintended consequences or unintended audiences that kind of come out of your original target i would oh. say I can totally imagine that. I mean, in particular, if any anyone in sales, um, basically of any kind, um, uh, you know, there's a, and, and that now now we can go into a few of the details of this, and we'll go into the the well, some of these will be from the most of these will be from the second edition and stuff like that. But you know, just again, I mentioned that Disney story before, but you know, to, to talk about sort of a personal experience I had, you know, sometimes you can be you can get the big meeting. Uh, for your b2b product you can be there you're you've you've flown there you're in the you get go through security you've got the badge you know you're in the office and you realize there's someone in that room whose last promotion was based on bringing in the product that you're trying to replace yeah um yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, like it can be incredibly tricky and so you've got all kinds of uh, really um interesting kind of uh uh you know insights and observations on this in your in your book and uh just one i yeah. wanted to zero in on was um gatekeepers and saboteurs Yes. Um, yes. Uh, well, uh, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I know. No, I just, just please, please go ahead and talk a little bit about your approach to thinking about, about that, those people in that situation. Yes. Yeah, so, so it kind of came out, came out of like the gap that I felt was, uh, was missing or the departed pieces that, that I felt were, were missing from the lean startup when it came to, uh, working on B2B or enterprise product, where the whole relationship building uh, aspect was kind of missing out of all this. Uh, so so uh, doing a lot of exploration, I kind of kind of mm. went back to like sales books from the 70s and all these things where you kind of figure out like these concepts actually very much apply to uh, a customer development process or a process where you're kind of trying to validate or test things in organization. So just, I think one of the big value adds, I think, of Lean B2B, the, the original version was kind of tying these two universes together a little bit where you have that complex sale universe from uh, new, tra- new strategic selling, for example, and bring that together with the Lean startup. We have the, the really quick learning cycle, but tie it with a more, I guess, relationship-driven uh, environment. And uh, gatekeepers, for example, are a big part of that. You're mentioning a good example, but like there is a bunch of different flavors of that, of reasons why companies uh, may not be willing to adopt an innovation, even though it would provide a greater benefit from their company. So just helping people think through that uh, situation, help them kind of get a sizing of the companies they go in, I think has been um, a good value add for, for, for people that have read the books. And um, just to give people a little kind of, you know, Easter egg or something like that, if you encounter a saboteur, um, uh, do you have any sort of specific advice for what one should do in that situation? Well, yeah, I think one of the key thing that can came out with it from this is is that the, your, your, the way you sell something to a team uh, means you're actually dealing with, let's say, five, six, maybe seven, eight different people that all have different uh, win results or different things that you're looking for out of this. So you can actually sweeten the, the pot for, for, for some of these people. 
Uh, so you need to kind of speak to them, understand their reality, understand why they're being saboteurs, why they're they're trying to sabotage the the uh, the deal, uh, and kind of figure out if there is a way to kind of uh, either either um, build more benefit for them specifically, or find a way to kind of get around them and still get the deal going. That's interesting. So one step you can be is like, think about why are they trying to sabotage it? And what interests do they have that I'm maybe not addressing? Or how am I framing things that seem antagonistic to their interests when I should frame them otherwise? Yeah, I, I think that's that's one of the big, big parts is understanding the perspective of multiple people and trying to adapt your communications or your approach to these different different voices, different perspectives. Um, and uh, what's a wedge? Oh, uh, yes. So that's more from the, the second edition of the book. Uh, so there's a lot of different uh, approaches that were discussed in the first book uh, that kind of into that idea of the beachhead market where you have an entry point in the market. So so kind of based on the idea of uh, how the allies uh, uh, took took the, uh, the, uh, the, the beaches in Normandy by focusing on a very, very na- narrow beach point. Where they actually put all their troops. So the more focus you have on that that small sliver of a market, the more you're able to uh, provide benefits. So if we put that in the concept of a product, so if you have something that only targets uh, dentists in Denver, you can be very, very, very specific about the offering that you put together. So you can speak to all of them. You can build something that really is ten times better than uh, the other solutions that are out there. And you can really uh, have something that's very specific. So in the second edition, because uh, I tried to kind of make that even clearer and kind of crystallize the elements that should be part of the wedge uh, and, and the concept. So trying to find uh, a form formula that's a little bit more, um, a little simpler uh, based on the interactions I, I've had with the founders over the last uh, eight, nine years. Yeah, you mentioned uh, that the wedge concept is mostly in the second edition. Um, and so that gives me an opportunity to ask you what was the, <laughs> I mean, you talk about it a lot in, in the video yeah. that you've got about it and uh, about that and things like that, but about like yeah. why, what was the sort of like, what's what changed between the first and second edition that led yeah. you to, to write a second edition? Yeah, yeah. So one example that I, I, I kind of use, and it's just just one, one, uh, one, one space, one category, more or less. Uh, there's this great uh, analysis that 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 a blogger did on the number of tools that were available in marketing in 2010, I believe. Uh, there were 250 of them, and today there's 11,000 of them. So just the amount of uh, extra noise, extra complexity, extra um, uh, extra competition that's available that's on the market, kind of kind of forces uh, forces founders, especially in B2B kind of find a, a really more specific, like uh, a narrower wedge to be able to kind of get that um, the initial attention and be able to uh, to get their, their foot on the market, be able to kind of start learning and kind of build their, their products from there. So now it's a lot more difficult to, to kind of uh, find the right opportunity to start with. So that's something that's very specific. Uh, it's also um, uh, much more dynamic in, in terms of the market and the consumer expect the customer expectations have very much changed in the sense that before, if there were just a few products in the category, you could actually work with the customer over time. And now you kind of have to do this faster. So you need to learn faster. You need to be able to provide value faster. So lead with value a little, little sooner. Uh, so there's different types of products that, that fit a little more uh, the new reality. And the book is kind of restructured around the idea of 
uh, building something that really works today based on what's been working in the last few years and what seems to be going to the trend forward. Yeah, that's really interesting. That uh, touches on uh, something I, I, in one of those uh, interviews that I listened to you talk about was how, um, I think if I got this right, that it's much, if you're in the B2B space, it's much actually more like people from these companies are going shopping um, for yes. different products now in the past, yes. rather than like, you know, they make a, they get a meeting with you and they expect to have sort of like, you know, pitches and, and sort of interactions back and yeah. forth. It's a lot more going shopping. And I, I mean, I, one of the biggest uh, examples of that happening and sort of uh, was Slack, for example, that, you know, in, in the past, it was like, you know, how did you get, how did you get a company to adopt your product? Well, you had meetings at high levels and you took people out to dinner or whatever, just yeah. whatever cartoon idea you had. Yeah. But with Slack, it was like people just started using it. The only reason they could do that is because kind of corporate culture changed where it was okay to kind of have a small team just use their own tool and things yeah. like that. Yeah, and the whole uh, product-led growth uh, playbooks, a little bit that idea of like uh, teams could actually discover and start using in the, in the company, and then there would be some expansion of the accounts. So these uh, new um, new ways to drive product to market are kind of also complexifying this. The shopping model has changed completely as well. Oftentimes, uh, the the buyers or maybe someone not even in the buy, not even the, the actual a team function function in the organization, maybe in procurement, we'll try all the different products. And um, and that actually gives us an opportunity to move to the last part of the interview before we go kind of full feature yeah, length. Of um, uh, but to talk about um, yeah. your book, your book writing process and things like that, and all of the all of these things are inter interconnected. Um, so you mentioned earlier sure. about uh, when you for your, the first edition of the B Lean B two B book that you tested it, um, and I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about what what you mean by that. Well, so I would say that at that point, it was a little bit uh, very much basic. So I had uh, roughly 10 people that read the book, uh, read the different iterations of the book, and kind of gave me feedback, gave me thoughts about it. Uh, but it was mostly that. I did a little bit of testing as well on the titles, the subtitle title. But for the other books that I did afterwards, uh, I went much further where I started doing more like different different uh, cohorts of testing. Basically, I would launch a new version of the book and have maybe 10 people uh, read it at the same time, give me feedback on the book. I tested as well uh, the visuals. I tested as well the, 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 uh, the title. I uh, did a lot of analysis based on data from Amazon as well. Uh, just to kind of kind of find uh, find the right positioning for the, the content, but also the the right mix that kind of connects well with the audience that I'm I'm, I'm going for. Uh, it's been interesting because like I I remember like when I like my uh, so Lean B two B is is has been selling constantly, but my book my other book uh, Solving Product is actually my best seller best selling book, uh, and it's been interesting because I got feedback from the same people some of the same people that actually read uh, the first iterations of Lean B two B and they were like I don't get it like I don't get who this is for. But then if you look at the specific audience that I'm actually targeting, those people very much get it. So it's, it's also like, like making sure that you have the right product for the, the specific audience that you're going after. And sometimes that kind of means like turning off audiences that would have got value from, uh, I guess, a book that is less focused or a book that is uh, a little bit less tuned to the actual audience that you're targeting. So I've been experimenting a lot with like the, the formats and the way out to how uh, the format can help with the actual uh, learning objectives of the people that are reading the book. So to help make it a little more uh, useful or sometimes I have more replay value in the book a little bit. 
Uh, so it's been an interesting process, but there's a lot of uh, testing that kind of goes there. Yeah, that's a very fascinating. That's a very fascinating process, and um, you know, the uh, we could go very deep into the weeds about the whole concept of a new edition, um, deep deep in the weeds of the publishing and authoring world, yeah. and what that means to the author, what that yeah. means to the audience, why you would position something, why why not just create a whole new book with a whole new title? Why create something with the same title yeah. but second edition? Um, uh, and it's 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 yeah. really interesting, right? Because yeah, you can have people who are like, well, if I bought the first yeah. one, what do I need the second one for? Uh, you know, and yeah. there are other people who are like i can't wait it's it's better it's even better now or or, or updated um and there can be audiences that are excited yeah. and disappointed um and in, in particular on lean pub actually but like, they're, they're, I, I yeah. won't, won't go into that too much but like you know since we have new versions we have to explain the difference between a new version and a new edition um yeah 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 but they're, they're all very expansive experiments to some extent extent like like um so if i look at like my my book series more or less like the uh, the the uh, second edition is a second edition. There's all the complexity uh, when shipping on on Amazon, for example, that they don't necessarily differentiate or relate the books so easily. So it creates some interesting uh, dynamics in terms of marketing and the terms of how this, the the people select products basically because one has way more reviews because it's older and the other one has less reviews because it's starting. So they're actually not. Uh, it's difficult to kind of gauge them together. And I've also written a book that is kind of like, um, uh, I don't remember what the right word is, but it's basically just, um, it's a sub book to another book. Uh, so my book, Finding Your Market is a, is a sub book to Lean B2B. So kind of a reversal, the methodology. And that's been interesting as well, because you're talking about the same overall audience that you're targeting with the same, uh, a different product. So it's been interesting experiments. And that's been kind of one of my learnings in the past few years is, is, is they're quite costly experiments like books, uh, especially if you're, you're like, you're, you're like, okay, I'm going to spend whatever, like eight or eight hours working on this and the outcome that you get can be uh, quite significantly different depending on the book, depending on the marketing, depending on the audience, depending on everything. Yeah, it's real. That's really fascinating that you mentioned the sort of sub product. Um, uh, one thing that at the end at the end of the the new book, uh, the second edition, you actually talk about um, next steps for B two B entrepreneurs, and then you sort of point people to a bunch of other resources that you've created in addition to the book. And I can imagine there's people who sort of find the the resources first, and then they get led back led back to the book. Yes. So it's a kind of a form of inbound marketing or something like that. But also, it's like at the it's it's a it's a really amazing thing to do at the end of a book to sort of point people to more stuff that you've done that they can that they can yes. get it get and use so it's not like the book's over this is all i have to say instead there's no there's even more of you and and your your stuff for people to look at and discover yeah it's the author platform i think that's definitely something that that should be like i'm always trying to push a little further i think more authors should be doing more on that front like now like the solutions that i use are pretty sophisticated like the email uh, retargeting all these different things i have like automated process for everything like like it it's it's a lot of work but it's it's definitely worth it just in this sense of uh being able to kind of build a relationship with some of the author some of the uh, the, the audience that have read the book like I've, I've done none of that for the first iteration of the of lean b2b and like i can't I, I don't even want to think about how much further my business would be if I had done this from the start and like captured, let's say, I don't know, 25% of all my readers' uh, email address over the years and kind of nurtured that over year, over the years. Like it was just something I feel was not done as much back then, but now I think it's, it's getting more and more in that direction. 
and I'm still uh, trying to experiment to try try to push that a little further. I would say uh, we we at Lean Pub know exactly how you feel. Um, <laughs> if we knew now what we knew then. Um, uh, but yeah, yes, uh, yeah. you know, specifically, I mean, something that people probably anyone who's made it this far and is listening to the sort of in the weeds publishing sort of stuff would know all of, but the, the news, the email newsletter basically is an incredibly important, uh, way of, of marketing and keep keeping and growing an audience and things like that. Um, and, uh, you know, encouraging people to share their email address with you or, um, uh, you know, just get them to sign up for your newsletter and things like that can be a great way of, uh, yeah, yeah keeping them interested, selling other things to people that are, and, but, but also knowing exactly what's useful to them and what they want um, and things yeah. like that. When it comes to, um, as it were, sub products, um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about what you think about audiobooks. Um, I saw you tweeting. <laughs> I saw you tweeting about that recently. Yes. Um, yes. And that's actually something. So a lot of people are like, okay, well, if I knew, if I knew 10 years ago, what I knew now, well, one yeah. of those, one of those things that people are really thinking about now is audiobooks. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your experience with that and what your thoughts yeah. are as, an, as a successful author about audiobooks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so like I, I created an audiobook version of my first book, and I tried to quantify like the amount of work, put that into like dollar amounts of like the investment that I put in. Uh, in that case, like I've made back the money for this. It's been profitable. It's been good in that sense. But you've seen over the years that Amazon's kind of squeezing the author more and more, and like asking for exclusivity and all these things. And this year, I think they changed as well the pricing model. That's I think that was this, the initiating uh, point for for this. I just think um, there's also, I just think personally, I think you can make more money by having uh, less formats available. And you've seen authors that have actually done that. Uh, there's an author that I'm thinking about that um, we actually removed this Kindle version for the same reason, because the perceived value of a, of a paperback copy is higher than a Kindle version. So by removing the, the, the Kindle version, maybe you sell 30% less, but at the end of the day, you make more money. So I've been I've been kind of toying with that idea, but I've, I, I'm pretty sure it's the case with the audiobook because at the end of the day, I make, uh, I don't know, $3 per copy sold on the uh, audio copy sold. So like, it's easy for me to just shift that more to, I don't know, have uh, to, to a Kindle or, or something else, I think at the end of the, day, the year. Uh, so I, I think... It's kind of I, it's kind of experimenting a little bit with the 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 sales revenue across this, and I think there's also competition between different platforms. I think Amazon also prefers the its own platforms where they get the higher margin of the sales. So I think there's a lot of mechanics in there that are not very advantageous for the authors, where you brought the cost of production and then you get the 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 smaller share of profits. I, I do think there's more platforms that seem to be coming up with, uh, for example, uh, was the one that was coming up for, for audio, uh, audio book, uh, with, uh, BookBub, the other one, uh, Crisp, I think, or, uh, something, something like that. So they're coming out with new platforms where you can actually listen to audiobooks and kind of pay fair rates. I think that might be better, but at the end of the day, I, I don't feel that this is a very fair exchange for authors that actually are making a living off the, the their their books and probably worse for authors that are not making their, a living off uh, book royalties. Yeah, thanks very much for sharing all of that. That's like incredibly useful information for anybody who's thinking of doing doing an audiobook themselves, um, uh, including keeping in mind sort of quanta keeping in mind quantifying things, which I know is something that you do in all the different aspects of your life. But like, you know, note things down, 
how productive is this? Is it sort of like, does it have sort of cumulative growth kind of that, it, that it's bringing to my life, whatever it is, whether yeah. it's publishing books yeah. or, you know, I, I don't know, imagine working out or something like that. Um, uh, but uh, with respect to audiobooks, I, my sort of, you know, kind of pub table opinions about that kind of thing are like, um, uh, you know, you know, when you see those old pictures of airlines from when airlines, you know, it's sort of like it was like a sort of had to be a grand experience, you know what I mean? Where like it's fashionable and things like taking that. Taking the plane. Yeah. Take, taking the plane. Um, and I think a lot of people, when they think of the audio book to, to this day, they're like, oh, it better be Benedict Cumberbatch kind of doing yeah. the audio and it better yeah. have, you know, great sound with a nice microphone done in a studio and things like that. Yeah, as well. But, but and a lot of people think that but then in the end actually people are just like they're they're like doing their jog and they've like got it on 2x speed and then they, they, they've got their own preferences for how they want to consume yeah, it and particularly yeah. with non-fiction books and books yeah. about self-improvement and and things like that for a lot of people the kind of as it were the kind of uh, the production quality is much less important to them than the quality of the the writing uh, and yeah. the words and the ideas and things like that yeah. Um, and so I think that I, at my, my view is that a lot of like actually what, what audiobooks are going to probably converge for nonfiction books, what audiobooks are going to converge on is basically a kind of informality. Um, and, uh, you know, as, as long as, as long as it's, um, consistent, basically, um, as long as the production is consistent, um, people yeah. are going to be okay with things. So for example, I think on medium now, uh, just for free, you could just click a button and it'll it'll play the audio um, yeah. for the post. Um, I do that all the time for books as well. I get the PDF, I upload it with uh, a read aloud in my browser, and I read the book this way. I think that's that's kind of the experience that you're mentioning. Like it's consistent. I get uh, I get it audio. I can do other things at the same time, but I can also like play it back and I have a visual. Yeah. I think that may be a stronger experience than just having audio because if you're taking mm -hmm. notes, especially for a business book. Then I, I just did one. I just uh, read one, read one, and uh, by audio recently, and just taking notes afterwards, where you need to like refer back to like like different uh, moments in the book, and then you're trying to transcribe yeah. the idea yeah. just to keep track of it. it. It's just I think it's probably very very good for all the fiction books as well. Like like that's probably mm. really, like you want the experience and all the, these things. But for business books, also looking at the unit economics of and the amount of money that you're getting from it. Uh, like there's a reason why a lot of authors that that are um, uh, more um, uh, in the authors, like you look at Rob Fitzpatrick, for example, like he's not creating audio versions of his uh, his books, even though he's selling way more than me. Uh, but like this, in this case, I think it makes sense. Like the, it's the, you're actually cannibalizing a little bit of your sales. Like you may be adding someone, uh, some of the top, uh, revenue but is the effort or the investment worth it i would very much um i guess suggest to other authors to look at link languages instead of uh audiobook uh, i'm looking at like i, I did a translate like my first language is french i did translation of the of my email marketing book into french it's took like a year to be paid back if i look at all my costs and everything on, on this thing and i was just driving profit and I'm slowly expanding into more languages like that. Uh, like, if you can keep the cost of production low for other languages, you can sell uh, longer tail, lo longer term uh, for the books in markets that don't have as much uh, competitivity in terms of the, the the books. So I think that's very interesting, especially if you, there's a uh, there's a there's a AMS version for the, the the country, for example, like France, where you have 
an ad platform and getting promoted properly uh, to the audience. Yeah, no, that's that's really great, really great advice. Um, uh, particularly, I would say that I've got two two things I would add about that. Um, one is that um, uh, when it comes to audiobooks on 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 LeanPub, for example, we have had some authors experiment with that, and what they do is, um, we actually have the the ability to create packages, so you can add um, arbitrary digital content to your to your book. So what people okay. will do is they'll they'll sell the book. And then they'll sell the book plus audio version. And yes, then people can yes. just download an MP. They'll get the book and they can download as what we call an extra. They can download the MP3. Um, and so what they'll do is they'll when someone goes to a LeanPub book landing page, they can see the book or the book plus audio book. And then that'll be for a higher price. Um, and then you can, you can sort of, that's a really good way of quantifying like how much how much actually is it sort the of actual version, version, right? Yeah, that's because good. Because you, yeah. you can see how many people are buying just the book and then how many people people are buying the book plus the audio book. And obviously the difference there sort of yeah. tells you, tells you what, what, what difference that's making. Um, uh, but I would add specifically about yeah, translations. Um, yes. This is an old, a very old lean pub stories years and years ago. I don't remember who it was or what the book was, but somebody, a lean pub author discovered that someone had translated their book into Russian um, and was just selling it. Uh, and instead of getting mad or like, you know, calling the cops, they, they, which, what, what are you really going to do? But they got in touch with the translator and said, I've got a new book coming out. How about you translate that? But we actually like share the revenue from your translation yeah. this time. Yeah. And the person yeah. was like, great. I, I, I didn't, I didn't mean to be a thief. I just loved your book and wanted to translate it, but I was a little bit intimidated. Didn't I, it was something like that. Like, um, yeah. so anyways, translations yeah. are great. <laughs> I'm, I'm uh, about uh, 300% sure that there is a Chinese version of, of Lean B2B somewhere. I just yeah. have no idea or no way to actually find it. I don't know exactly <laughs> where to look, but I'm yeah. pretty sure there is. Yeah. But, but I mean, you know, as long as your name's still on it, you know, there's still, people are still learning about you and, you know. Yeah. Let's hope that's the case at least. Let's hope that's <laughs> maybe not. But, uh, but anyway, it's, uh, I just, I just, I love telling that story because you yeah. know, it's, it's it depends. It all depends. I mean, when it comes to self-publishing or even being an author generally, it all depends. What are your goals? You know, is it to, yeah. is it to get a job uh, like you were talking about? You know, is it to get, yeah. get clients if you're a consultant? Is it just to be, have a, build a platform because you just like that idea and you, you've got a mission that you're on? Uh, yeah. I think that's definitely a good question to ask, to ask yourself, like in terms of the, the way you price, the way you do all these things kind of is a, should be a reflection of uh, your actual goals or strategy or whatever you're trying to do. Yeah. Like the, a lot of things that I mentioned are based on the fact that I'm trying to maximize my ability to write another book or have enough uh, funding to be able to keep going as an independent author as well. Well, uh, HN, um, on that note, thank you very much for taking some time out of your day uh, to to talk to us and to talk to our audience about, about your, your book and your background and your experience and everything like that. I'm sure it'll be uh, very useful for a lot of people. Um, just before you go, the, the very last question I like, I like to ask if the guest on the podcast has been, has been using LeanPub, um, if there was one uh, terrible thing that you always, whenever you go to upload a book on LeanPub, was sort of had you shaking your fist at us. Uh, from a user experience side, or if there was one magical feature we could build for you, um, can you think of anything you would ask us to do? Can I be honest? Yes, oh, for sure. <laughs> yes, I, I can't find the link to actually add the book. It always takes me 15 minutes to find it. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. No. So. 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 Yeah. So the way the what what's happening there is um. So when you go you go to create a book on LeanPub, we've got like LeanPub yeah. slash dot com slash create. You yeah. pick a you pick a mode, and in this case, you would pick the upload writing mode. And what Etienne's saying is that like finding the place to actually go upload the book 
is uh is just tricky and hard to find um and uh that's one of those we've had that feedback before and it's something that we're working on fixing um including potentially actually like doing what basically everybody else does which is upload the book right there like if you're going to upload book mode you've already got a book ready um and probably actually uploading it at that at the book creation step rather than making you go anywhere to find it um afterwards would probably be the best thing I think that's my that's my situation at least but yes yeah okay Neil thanks very much for that and we we very much value honest uh feedback here um insofar as lean pub is sort of usable at all it's because people have told us what they really think over the years uh so yeah thank you very much Etienne for being on the lean pub front matter podcast thanks for having me and as always thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the front matter podcast if you like what you heard please rate and review it wherever you found it and if you'd like to be a lean pub author yourself please check out our website at leanpub.com Thanks.